Good morning, everyone. My name is Lucinda, and I'm going to be reading the Bible this morning. Uh, the Bible reading today will be from Matthew 14, 22 to 33. Before we start, though, I'd like to, to pray. Loving God, thank you for loving us even when we are fearful and doubtful. Give us the wisdom to discover you. Open our eyes, minds and hearts so that we can discover more about all that you are, all that you have done for us and all that you sacrificed for our lives and freedom. Give us strength to help others who are fearful to put their trust in you. Strengthen our faith that we will not doubt you, but trust that you have everything in hand. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffered by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. All right, well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Yeah, not too bad. Big weekend for some. You know, a little mellow this morning. That's cool. All right. We are continuing on here with our series on what you guys want to know. If you're visiting here with us uh, back in term two, we did a survey of the whole church asking for different topics that people want us to preach on. We then sort of did, did a big vote on all of those nominations, uh, and we've selected uh, the, the top sort of nine that we thought we could speak to best in sermon series. We've done some others in workshops and that sort of thing. And today, we're looking at this topic of how do we reconcile the Bible with science. It's a classic. It's one that people have been asking themselves for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's good and right for us to keep thinking about what it means for us today. Because the reality is, is that our world loves science. 
right? Uh, it's, it's funny, actually. Uh, you know, geek chic is now a distinguished uh, fashion uh, sensibility, uh, which I like to rock during the week. Uh, but you can actually sort of see that science is not just highly regarded in academic fields, but in, you know, the things that we wear, right? Uh, and the thing is that science knows this. So we've got a cute little one here. Uh, science doesn't care what you believe. Uh, thanks, science. Really, it's, that's kind of you. Uh, Science is greater than opinion. Science is about facts and established things and hard, concrete stuff. Uh, the rest of it is just people talking, that sort of thing. And even a little bit darker, uh, you know, this one's pretty rough. Science flies you to the moon. Religion flies you into buildings. Rough, right? Now, here's Ning, right? Uh, Science makes all sorts of big claims, and, and this is really, really important. Uh, across scientists, there's a spectrum of you know, opinions about what science can and cannot do, and we're going to think about that a little bit. But one of the things that we have to recognize is, uh, is that science doesn't necessarily teach us everything. You know, English is important, but science is importanter. Uh, you know, so we have to ask ourselves, what are those limits? Where, where, where are the boundaries and that sort of stuff? And that will help us to answer this question, are science and religion really in conflict? Now, to set the tone of the discussion a little bit, I've got a video here that I'm going to play uh, from a discussion that was had on the ABC's Q&A program. It's a few years back, but still you know, contemporary figures that you'll recognize. It's a longer clip than I'd normally play in church, but because uh, I am a uh, theologian, I have training in philosophy and history and that sort of stuff, I can talk about what scientists talk about and what they believe, uh, but it's better to hear it directly from them, so to speak. So this goes for about five minutes. Like I said, it's longer than a clip I'd normally play in church, but I think it's really helpful to hear scientists reflecting on this topic. These guys aren't believers, uh, but they're humble about what science can and cannot do. And so we're going to uh, play that for you guys now, and then I'll share some thoughts coming off of that. It's from Keith Zhao in South Wentworthville in New South Wales. Is there a place for God in science? And Brian, I'll start with you because I know you don't like being referred to as an atheist. Well, only, only because, so I don't have a, I don't believe in a God, right? however, um, I don't like the, uh, the, the, the antagonism that, 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 that occurs or is produced by this question. I mean, what you can say if, you, if you're a cosmologist, what you should say is, so, so we know that the universe was very hot and dense 13.8 billion years ago. Uh, we don't know how it got hot and dense. We don't even know, actually, if the universe had a beginning in time. Don't know. So um, that, that, to me, is where the, the, the science science starts for me with I don't know. Getting the more to the point question. of that question. So, so so you had a bit of an argument. With, you had a bit of an argument with the famous atheist Russell Brand, who's um, also a comic, as we know. But but you said to no, him, Russell's not an atheist. Russell's a, he's not strongly believes in that. You said to him um, that science doesn't rule out the existence of a creator. No, but in the sense that I just said, that I think we're overstepping the, the mark. I, I do not believe there's any evidence for a creator. However, there certainly isn't no evidence. You know, the, the, the point is that the correct thing to say is we don't even know whether the universe had a beginning. I don't even know whether it was eternal. Nobody does. So, so that, that is the point I was making. I think we're, over, we're stepping into a, an area where we don't really need to be. Yeah, and I think a point, and, and as scientists, we need to be humble about the fact that we don't know everything. 
And we shouldn't pretend to know anything on a lot of questions because climate change is so incredibly complex. The marine system is all these different inputs and circulations and different drivers. And so, you know, we get to the limit of our knowledge. And I think really what you're trying to say is we need to be careful not to go beyond yeah. what we know. The, the great, great so, Richard Feynman, the great Nobel Prize winner, he, he, it's a beautiful quote where he says that, um, he says, what is the meaning of it all? And he, said, uh, and he says, in the end, we have to admit that we do not know. But in admitting that, we may have found the open channel. That's the key to science. We don't know. David, what do you think? So I, co I completely agree with all of those comments. But there's obviously lots of, if you like, mysticism that helps people understand their unexplained observations. Science is one way that we use for trying to explain and gather evidence to help understand a range of, if you like, previously unexplained phenomena. Others in the past and some presently also use their own observations and then faith to help them explain that. I think those are different perspectives. None is better or worse than the others. But we need to be careful that if we want to understand natural phenomena, I think what we have to think about is how can we use the evidence that Emma talked about before to make policy decisions? I would much rather base those on well-founded, well-collected evidence than faith. Fair enough. Um, Kirsten, what do you think? It's an interesting question. Um, do you think there is uh, some sort of creative being uh, that exists beyond science? I'm going to give you my favourite answer to give to any science question if I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm with you, Brian. I, we, we don't know. There's, there's, yeah. It's like Brian says, there's, I'm going to say there's null evidence. Not no, not some, null. There's just... There's a very quick, serious point I'd like to make, which is that I remember once I was giving a talk to schools in, a, in London, and London is a very, very diverse population of many people, many faiths and none. And I was asked that question, is it possible to be a scientist and believe in God? And I was taken back, actually, and I, I, so I said, yes. And I was going to have some common caveat, like you said, the caveats there, but I got a round of applause, and I thought, this, this is important because the last thing someone like we should do is close off that possibility of being a scientist because someone has... Well, I mean, Professor, what is, what is Professor Hanbury Brown, who built the interferometer um, up in the in parks, I think, um, he, was a, he believed in God. I grew up with him. But, I know that. There aren't. So, so the, you know, the, the worst thing to do would be for, for you know, a, a, a room full of students to say, well, you can't be, you, you, you can't be a scientist because you believe this thing or that thing or the other. Yeah. That, that's, that would be a terrible thing to do. Yeah. Got time for... Um, sorry. Quick no, and I mean, you know, if, if we say God, it's, it's everybody would imagine something different, I suppose. And, and we have to be realize that it's probably not sort of the little translation of the Bible that the earth was created in seven days and all the rest of that. Certainly from the scientific perspective, that would be hard to adopt. But going back further in time and with some of the unknown questions that are still uh, confronting us, you know. So I think, I think we have to be a little bit open-minded about what God is to people and what it could be. We've got time for one. All right, interesting, right? Scientists, leaders in their field, experts, but this real humility about what science can do. So often, uh, when we grab you know, 
media quotes and that sort of thing, and we see these big names like Richard Dawkins and Neil deGrasse Tyson and this sort of stuff talk about it, you would swear that there is no way that you could both be a person of faith and a scientist. The way that there's, there's constant battles being waged and shots being fired and clever, vicious quotes and all that sort of stuff. But then you hear guys like this talking and you start to wonder, well, actually, what, why is it such a big deal? These guys aren't believers, but they're certainly not closed to the possibility that there could be more out there that we are yet to discover. So uh, Brian Cox you know, talk, says again, I do not believe there's any evidence for a creator. However, this certainly isn't no evidence. The, the point is, the correct thing to say is we don't even know whether the universe had a beginning. I don't know if it was eternal. Nobody does. We're stepping into an area where we don't really need to be. There's, there's a limit, and maybe there's some spaces that science isn't actually the best answer for. Uh, I love this guy's name. Uh, Dr. Martin Van Krenendonk. He just sounds like he should be an expert in something. Uh, <laughs> as scientists, we need to be humble about the fact that we don't know everything. We shouldn't pretend to know, on a lot, know anything on a lot of questions. And so, you know, we get to the limit of our knowledge. We need to be careful not to go beyond what we know. And the other guy uh, that was on the right there, uh, Dr. David Carroll, the Australian guy, uh, works with CSIRO. There's obviously lots, if you like, mysticism that helps people understand their unexplained observations. Science is one way that we use for trying to explain and gather evidence to help understand a range of, if you like, previously unexplained phenomena. Others in the past and some presently also use their own observations and then faith to help them explain that. I think those are different perspectives. None is better or worse than others. So we're going to do a little bit of work here to understand if these scientists who aren't believers can be open to the possibility of God or at least other sources of knowledge, why is this such a big question? Because it is a big question, right? We all felt this at one point or another, that science presents a real challenge to faith or that it's really hard to believe in both or how we can bring these two together. So let's look at this a little bit. Let's, let's do some definitions here. All right, science uh, from the Oxford Reference Library, uh, the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment, or maybe we can say it a little more simply, it's the study of the physical world through observation and experiment. Science is interested in the physical world specifically uh, by the methods of observation and then experimentation. Okay, we'll explore that a little bit further later on. And you might ask yourself, well, why is that inherently a trouble for the Christian faith? Like, if it's that studying the physical world, why is that a problem? And actually, for a long time, in fact, when modern science, this whole particular method of observation and experiment really came into itself in the 17th century, the earliest people, the very founders of the Royal Society in London that still exists today, these guys were believers. They saw their study of the physical world as an extension of their faith and as going along with it. But the thing is, is that over time, and uh, if you want to come along to the Q&A tonight, uh, I have like many more slides to explain how we got here because I got a little history nerd about it, but we won't go into it too much. But essentially, uh, what happened was, was that science okay, developed into a philosophy, a belief that we can sort of call scientism. Right? So this is the excessive belief in the power of scientific knowledge and techniques. Uh, some of you might have heard of the philosophy of naturalism or materialism or positivism. These are all similar sorts of things. So naturalism is the philosophical belief that everything arises from natural properties and causes and supernatural or spiritual explanations are excluded or discounted. Essentially, it's saying there is the physical world, there are natural causes, and that's it. And any attempt to, to say otherwise shouldn't even really be considered. 
Okay, because we can't know those things, so we're just going to exclude them, not you know, really take them seriously. You can have an opinion, I guess, but you can't prove it, so it doesn't matter, it's not real. All right? This is the sort of thing that lies behind somebody like Richard Dawkins. Uh, you know, there is nothing mystical or supernatural about life. For him, it's all about the physical world, and everything can be reduced back to that. What I mean by that is if we just imagine that this uh, uh, shape here is, is everything, okay? By everything, I mean everything, right? Absolutely anything that you can conceive of. Let's put it in that, uh, that oval there. And then we can draw a box inside of this, which is everything observable by science. And what a naturalist does, or, a, or somebody who is, you know, would uphold scientism, is they say, well, here is everything that we can observe by science, and there, there is nothing else. If there is, we can't know it, so it's not worth worrying about, but actually, most of the time, we, we, we don't think that it's actually there. Now, that's a different thing from science, right? Science is the process of observation, experiment, hypothesis, testing, reaching conclusions, all that sort of thing. This is an assumption that if we can't see it or measure it, it doesn't exist. Now, if you say, well, how do they prove that? This is a tricky thing. It's a circular argument. We can, we can know the physical world. The physical world is something we can engage with. Uh, anything that exists outside of that, we can't know. Therefore, it doesn't exist. The, the premise doesn't lead to the necessarily to that conclusion, but that's where you get to logically. And if you asked about things like, well, what about love or ethics or meaning and purpose or even God, well, they'd want to either reduce those things down to the physical components only, so love is only chemical reactions inside your body, ethics, you can't really talk about right or wrong, there's only beneficial or harmful, and when it comes to meaning, it's all about function, are you doing what you're physically wired to do, and again, God... It's, it's, it's speculation. So either these things can be reduced down to their physical form or they're fiction, they're an illusion, they don't really exist. And so it's really important that when we talk about you know, reconciling the Bible to science, it's pretty tough to reconcile the Bible to scientism, and I'm being a little cheeky with that photo, I don't mean any disrespect intellectually, uh, but you know, the idea that science is everything, that science is the belief system that shapes how you perceive the world, that's a, that's a tough thing to reconcile with scripture. But the scientific method, the idea that we can, you know, as it got to here, we can observe, research, have a hypothesis about how things are working in the physical world, test it, analyze it, report conclusions, there's no contradiction with that in the Bible whatsoever. Like it, in one space, we're studying the physical world and there's a way that scripture gives us to relate matters of faith and that sort of stuff to the physical world, but there's no contradiction here, not in that. But at the same time, the church does have to own that we have created some of our own problems in this space by making some logical errors of our own. Uh, so we here, uh, as a Presbyterian church, we love a dude by the name of John Calvin. We're going to talk about uh, him actually in a few weeks' time when we look at the question, what is Presbyterianism? Uh, he got into a bit of beef with this dude, uh, Nicholas Copernicus. Okay, So Copernicus, many of you would know, he was the first guy that really sort of got traction with the fact that the sun is at the center of the solar system and not the earth, that planets revolve around the sun and not the heavens revolving around the earth. And John Calvin, in the knowledge that he had at the time, was basically like, bruh, 
You know, that's ridiculous. And he's got this long quote, you know, about how we're not ignorant of the fact that, you know, the circuit of the heavens is finite, that the earth, like a little globe, it's placed in the middle of it, middle of it all. The heavens revolve daily. You know, this is, you know, this is crazy, man. If we were spinning around like that, we'd experience concussion. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, and, he, and he just sort of goes on with all this to, you know, basically say, look, God is holding the earth up. You know, it doesn't make any sense to consider anything else. Now, the problem is, is that what he was doing was taking some pictures that are given in Scripture, which is not a scientific textbook, and treating the Bible's description of the physical world as though it was a scientific textbook. So, for example, if we read in something like Psalm 19.6, where it says, the sun rises at one end of the heavens and make its circuit to the other, nothing is hidden from its heat. Right? So the psalm here would seem to be saying that the sun is moving in a circuit. But the thing is, is that psalms are not science textbooks. Psalms are poetry written from a human perspective. And so the way that it describes what's happening in the physical world doesn't have to correspond with the way that a modern scientific explanation would go. And the truth is, is that we still do this with language today. So if we were to go to the Bureau of Meteorology, who very much know that the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, they still use language like sunset and sunrise, even though we know it's not the sun that's rising, the sun is still in the middle, the sun's not moving, we're spinning around it, but we use language in a common sort of vernacular to talk about that process, even though that doesn't match up with what these scientists themselves know, about the physical world. And so for us Christians, we've got to be careful when we read the scriptures to recognize that the Bible is not a scientific textbook that's just making observations about the physical world. It's a book that reveals to us who God is and tells us about the history of God's people and speaks about the physical world in all sorts of various ways. And we have to be paying attention to that before we translate that description in Scripture to literally to saying that this is how the physical world works. Now, I have a very high view of Scripture. I believe that the Bible should be interpreted literally, but because I'm a student of English and literature, I also understand that genre, the way that different pieces of writing works, varies from space to space, and to interpret something literally doesn't always mean there's a one-to-one correspondence with what we might read in a scientific description of the physical world. But if I would critique theologians of the past and even of the present who'd make those sorts of interpretations, it's also really important for us to understand that science as a system of knowledge has its own flaws that we need to be aware of too, because those who would hold to some sort of scientism uphold science as this shining light of authority and fact and concrete things that are incontrovertible and all that sort of stuff, but that's actually not always the way that science actually works. In fact, most of the time, what the scientific community is, going to be, is believing or takes as fact is going to be flawed at least in some way. So uh, this is John Ioannidis, a, a Greek-American uh, professor of meta-science. What a great title, right? I don't, I'm not just a professor of science, but meta-science. Uh, meta-science is the study of science. Okay, he, he is looking at the science of science. How does science get done? How does it actually work, right? Now, he is a scientist. He believes in the scientific method. So I, just keep that in mind as I give this, this first quote here. This is a scientist critiquing science. He says, at every step in the process, 
there is room to distort results, a way to make a stronger claim to select what's going to be concluded, says Ioannidis. There is an intellectual conflict of interest that pressures researchers to find whatever it is most likely to get them funded. Now, I'm not trying to discredit all of science here, but my point is, is that science is done by people, and people are motivated by a whole different sort of, you know, there's all sorts of things that motivate people in different spaces at different times. Science isn't being done in a vacuum. Science is still being done by people, and it's still being done by communities that have all sorts of different social pressures and things that influence the way that people interpret things and how they present them and how they use them. And what was so interesting about this is that this is not just opinion, but this is, this is a conclusion that Ioannidis reached after his research. So his flagship study showed that when his team took the top 49 studies in medical research, that we're looking at medical science in particular here, which they determined by choosing 49 articles that were most cited in the most widely cited journals in medical science, so the best of the best, top of the top stuff, 45 of these studies claimed to have found effective interventions in various health issues. But when the team looked at the, looked at the retests of 34 of those studies, 41% were shown to be wrong or significantly exaggerated. I need this team conclude that if between a third and a half of the most acclaimed research in medicine was proving untrustworthy, the scope and impact of the problem was undeniable. Now, again, I'm not trying to say that science is bunk, not by any stretch of the imagination. Science has given us all sorts of super helpful things, and defenders of the scientific method would look at this and say, no, no, that's how science works. We test something, we get a result, we make a conclusion, but then over time we continue to reevaluate and we sharpen our knowledge and we get more and more accurate over time. Absolutely. No argument with that whatsoever. But the point is that if at any one point in time you want to take a snapshot of science as it is now and say, well, science has completely disproven all these other things, or science means this, it's, well, our current understanding says this about that. But science is not this bedrock authority that always has it right. It's a continually evolving discipline. And so there needs to be that humility that the guys were talking about before when it comes like, yeah, there are things that we have great certainty about, and yet we want to make sure that we don't overstep in terms of how definitive our knowledge is. And there's area of debate within science about what things we can show about or not. But to take a theological approach to it, to think about it from a Christian point of view, we know that, again, like I said, if science is done by humans and it's done in a vacuum, then it's going to be fallible. As Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Scientists are great people, many of them doing many good things in the world, but the problem of sin in the human heart doesn't go away because you put on a white lab coat. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Despite our best intentions, we can still go astray, even those that are seeking to do good in the world. It's the picture of Scripture that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, crying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by nature, children of wrath like the rest of humankind. There's no exception for those with academic credentials. And so to put it bluntly, if we've got uh, a problem with our physical heart, then I absolutely want doctors with scientific degrees working on that. But if we've got a problem with our spiritual heart, if we've got a problem with the way that our thoughts, feelings, will, decision, and those sorts of things reach, well, in that case, I want Jesus to be going to work on it. Because the Bible teaches me that 
he came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to go to work on our sinful hearts. But here's the really interesting thing. The reason that I believe what Jesus says about healing the brokenhearted and about that we have a problem with sin and that there, there are all these things that are outside of the physical world, funnily enough, those matters of faith, for me, are something that I hold to because of what happened in the physical world. Let me show you what I mean. Sorry for the lot of text on the screen, but I want to sort of have you guys see it all at once, okay? So this is the start of uh, 1 John, a letter that one of the apostles, John, wrote. And he's talking about the, the, the grounds for why they believe what they believe. Now, I'll, I'll read it in full, but, but notice these words as we go through this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, word of life there is probably talking about Jesus himself. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are right in these things so that our joy may be complete. See, the Christian faith isn't based upon just a whole bunch of, you know, mythical fairy tales, made-up stories, and that sort of idea. The Christian faith is grounded in history by those that saw things, those who observed, and then made conclusions based upon what they heard, what they saw, and even in the case of Jesus, what they touched. What did Jesus invite Thomas to do after his physical resurrection? Come and touch the holes in my hand. Touch my side. Physically interact with me so you know that this Jesus who stands before you is the resurrected Lord. The way that Jesus speaks to us most clearly in the scriptures is not through some fancy, flighty, abstract concept, but through his death and resurrection, his physical interaction with the world. Jesus took on physical form to reveal himself to us. He came in a way that could be observed physically. And this gets us to our, our Bible reading, because I find this a really little fascinating one. Now, look, this is overlaying two different sorts of thinking and that sort of stuff, but I think that there's enough similarity here for you to see that when it comes to evaluating the Scriptures, we can see that in the apostles' mind and those that were following Jesus... They were not just following by blind faith. They weren't just following in ignorance of the physical world. But again, they were watching what Jesus did in the physical world and drawing conclusions from that. So get this. From the Bible reading. It says that after Jesus had dismissed all the people that were following him, he went up on a mountainside himself to pray. Later that night he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Okay, so miracle, right? Just make that really clear. This is one of those miraculous stories, all right? Outside of the realms of the natural order. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. This thing that he was doing was so out of the ordinary that they were terrified by it. And, and try to put into a category of thought, like this must be some sort of ghost or a scary thing because normal people don't do this. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then Peter gets an idea. 
Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Observation. Jesus is walking on the water. Thesis. Jesus is Lord of all. Hypothesis. If he is Lord of all, then he can make it so I can walk on the water. Experiment. Walk on the water. Come, Jesus said to him. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they climbed to the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Hypothesis proved. Conclusion, truly, you are the Son of God. See, Scripture doesn't ask us to switch off our brains. It doesn't even ask us to step outside of the scientific method. It asks us to take the observations of the apostles, to take the eyewitness testimony of those who were there, and to say this was something that, yes, we acknowledge was completely out of the ordinary. We were terrified by it, but we tested this. And see, what's really, really important is that we need to understand this about the scientific method, okay? If you are in science or you know people in science, you know they don't run every experiment for themselves, right? Like whenever you come into a basis of knowledge that's been developed by a community over hundreds and hundreds of years, you can't retest everything yourself. You have to rely on the testimony of others and the study that they have done where they've proven something and you say, okay, well, I don't have time to research myself, but they're telling me that this is established because the experiments they've done seems to make sense to me, so I'm going to operate with that part of knowledge and then continue to build my own. And that's what the Bible's asking us to do as well, that there are those who saw these supernatural, miraculous, outside of the regular way of operating things that took place, but they're asking us to believe it on the testimony of eyewitnesses, and back in their own time when there were those who could go forth and double-check them, while they received these things from others, they know that there were people that saw it. In fact, there were lots of people that saw it. And he said, you can go and ask them if you need to. Now, the thing is about a miracle is you can't retest it. Okay, the, the, the whole point is it's, it's out of the ordinary way of operating. If it, was, if it kept happening regularly, we'd have to now include that in the way that things normally work. But just because we can't retest something doesn't mean that there's not grounds for believing in it. That's what evolution asks you to do. We, we can't retest evolution, not in like a macro sense, one species changing to another, but there's a sense there in which we, you know, believe it based upon other things and that sort of stuff. Now, we'll talk about that specifically in just a second. In fact, we'll do it here. So, okay, I've established that the Bible and science are not necessarily in contradiction to each other. You can use the scientific method, that there's even ways of observing and experiencing the physical world that we see in the Bible and all that sort of stuff. But what about when they get to a different conclusion? What about when the Bible seems to be saying one thing, even when we take into account genre, even when we take into all those sorts of things? What about when it seems to say something different. And of course, creation evolution is one of the, the big ones, right? And it's tricky because those who believe in creationism of some description, and again, there's a spectrum, okay? There's some people that I might want to hang out with and be friends with, and there's some guys that I might just avoid when I'm walking down the street, all right? But um, 
The thing is, is that both of them want to point towards argument based off of what they observe in the physical world. Both of them want to use science to say that, no, my position is grounded in logic and reason and observation and all that sort of stuff. And so it requires here, again, some humility in trying to bring these things together and, again, not making the mistake that Calvin made where we say more than what Scripture actually asks of us. Okay? So, for example, when we get young earth versus old earth, right? You tally up the years that are present in Scripture, that sort of stuff. You know, some people would say the Bible teaches that the earth is 6,000 years old. Science, as we heard from, from Dr. Brian Cox, 13.8 billion years is the current estimate or so. There's a bit of discrepancy between those two numbers if you look carefully. Um, but here's the thing. When we read Genesis and we read it carefully, we, we, we can at least see some stuff which would make us say, okay, there's at least some questions that we have to ask in terms of when it talks about six days, is it six little days? Now, I know I'm treading on sensitive territory for some. Um, so my way of handling this is just to plow right there. Um, <laughs> just hear me out, okay? What I'm trying to do is, is just open our minds to see that there are at least questions here. And where you land on this is not definitive of your salvation. But there's things for us to think about. So if we look at Genesis 1, description of the fourth day. God said that let there be lights in the vaults of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the big night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. Now, what's really interesting is that before anybody even had an inkling that evolution might be a thing or that it was a theory or anything like that, you go back to the early church fathers, guys like Augustine and Origen, big-time theologians back in their day and all that sort of stuff, they had real questions then about whether if God only created the sun on the fourth day, how could you have a 24-hour day for the first three? If it was only with the creation of the sun that it says that he was given to govern the times of days and years and that sort of idea, then were these first three days actually literal 24-hour periods? Now, I know. For some of you out there, you, some of you have got your trigger fingers, you're, yeah, yeah, but I know. Okay. This is something for us to talk about. This is something for us to wrestle with. But the point is, is that just like, you know, Brian Crox des you know, deserves credit for recognizing the humility when it comes to science, so too we should be humble in our reading of Scripture because we've been wrong before when we've said, no, 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 Scripture is definitely saying this. But over time we realize, uh, maybe we were actually taking that the wrong way. Like if I read Psalm 19.6 and I was like, no, no, see, it's telling me that the sun is, is going around the earth. Eh. Maybe there's a different way to read this. But for some of you, I know that you are concrete thinkers and you will not be satisfied unless you have at least some concrete examples of how you might reconcile these things together. So in the hope of just leaving you all completely disturbed and confused, <laughs> what I'm going to do is present to you nine, very quickly, but seriously briefly, just to give you an idea of all the different things that are out there, because this isn't about answers. This is about recognizing limits of knowledge. These are some of the different models that people propose to reconcile 
at least creation accounts and the age of the earth with science. So these are young earth creation models. These people believe that the earth was created in something like six days. Uh, and yeah, so here it goes. So perhaps the earth was created with the appearance of age. Humans were created as adults and trees as trees rather than seedlings. So why could the earth not also appear older than it actually is? Similarly, natural resources like metals, minerals, coal, oil were also placed in the earth as a blessing to humans. It works intellectually. If there is a God, could he have created the world with the appearance or seemingly being much, much older than it actually is in the same way that he didn't make Adam as a baby? Sure. If you accept God, that's legit. Okay, as an option. How about the flood geology view? This, the dramatic cataclysm of Noah's flood in which the entire earth was covered with water would have affected the rock formations and fossil strata in numerous ways, assuming that our dating methods are accurate with respect to the antediluvian, that just means after the flood, world, is therefore impossible. The data has simply been distorted at a global level. Basically, the flood messed everything up and it's just, you know, we can't know what happened before that. That's the idea. Again, just want to say, I'm not saying I believe in any of these. I'm saying that these at least have some logic to them and not abandonment of reason in order to try and figure out stuff. Contingency of science view. The fact that scientific conclusions are always changing, we talked about that before, makes it a dubious basis on which to criticize the biblical account. At the moment, no satisfactory harmonization of science and scripture exists. But then again, hardly anybody in the academy is pursuing one. In time, a convincing model will emerge. Just give us time, guys. We'll figure it out. Just trust the Bible, all right? Eventually, science is going to catch up and figure out that it was right. Uh, and this doesn't exclude that maybe we read some scriptures wrong, but essentially, it's saying, don't freak out. Science has been wrong before. Let's just wait and see. These are old earth creation models. So these people believe that God created, but the age of the earth is much, much older than six little days. So this is the day-age view that six days of Genesis 1 represent six ages of time. The Big Bang, the emergence of oceans and an atmosphere, the appearance of plants on the earth, the visibility of the sun, moon, and stars, the development of fish and bird life, and finally, the arrival animals and humans each takes several hundred million years. So basically, the earth could be really old. Genesis could be speaking figuratively about the days of the week. Hey, not a problem. Let's just roll with that. Um, I like this one just because of its creativity. A large chronological gap exists between Genesis 1.1 and 1.2, lasting millions or billions of years. We've got no evidence of this, but it doesn't say it doesn't do that, so hey, why not? Uh, the rebellion of Satan, consequent judgment of the earth, took place in this period. Rocks aged, plants and animals died. The six days of Genesis 1 thus described the reformation of the earth rather than its original creation. You run into some exegetical problems with this one, but again, creative. Uh, Land of Israel view, again, super creative. Although Genesis 1.1 is about the creation of the universe, Genesis 1, to 2, Genesis 1, 2 to 31 is specifically about the preparation of the land of Israel, which is the same area as the Garden of Eden for human habitation. This, habitation. Uh, that is the focus of the entire Pentateuch, and it means there's no conflict between Genesis and science. The universe was doing its thing. Genesis describes what God was doing in the land of Israel. Ha, gotcha. Um, take it or leave it. And last one, three theistic evolution models. This is the special creation view. Evolution is the means God used to create the diversity of plant and animal life on planet Earth. Human beings have always specifically created by God and do not share common descent with the great apes. Adam was created from the Earth. Eve was created from Adam's side. All humans descend from them, and the fall literally happened. 
So humans created specially, everything else, evolution. Uh, it's just the uh, ne oh, yeah, ne Neolithic farmer's view. Evolution culminated in hominids and eventually Homo sapiens. The dust of the earth means matter or physical stuff. In this case, two Neolithic farmers whom God chose granted his image and into whom he breathed spiritual life. Not all humans descend from Adam and Eve. God created other humans in the same way, but the fall literally happened and affected all humans with Adam as the federal head of the human race. Adam represented all, and so everyone was affected by it, even if they weren't all descended from him. And then lastly, the mixed ancestry view. Human ancestry is mixed. Adam and Eve were created in, in, as per the special creation view, but many other early humans were created from pre-existing material as described in the Neolithic farmer's view. A variant sees Adam as created from a hominin, uh, hom yeah, but homin hominid, homin homin hominid, I think that should be, as opposed to something that sounds like something else. Uh, but Eve is uniquely created from his side. Not all humans descended from Adam and Eve, but the fall literally happened and affected all humans with Adam as the federal head of the human race. So, lots of different views. Maybe one of them appealed to you more than others, all right? There are other views, but I think they go too far, because I think that one thing that is actually really essential is that whatever view you take of Genesis, and all of these views do, is that you have to have a historical Adam and Eve because of the way that Jesus and the rest of the New Testament speaks about them and because of the consequences for their actions upon the rest of the world. Some inter interpretations of Genesis want to say that it's just myth, that, it, that it's just a, like a parable to talk about how God created the world in the sense of like the order with which is there and all that sort of stuff. I think there's some truth to that, but, it, but if you get to a point where you actually say Adam and Eve weren't actual people that God interacted with, it gets much more difficult to actually uphold some really crucial theological principles. So, for example, in Romans 5, Paul writing says, Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Paul believes really distinctly that it was Adam's sin in the physical world that led to death coming in in a broader sense. Now, you can reconcile animal death is distinct from human death. You can do all sorts of different things in that space. But if Adam didn't exist historically, it's tough to uphold this theological principle. Similarly, when Jesus talks about Adam and Eve, when he talks about the garden, when he talks about Genesis, he talks about what God actually said and did and interacted with them. Again, in a real physical sense. Jesus clearly believed Adam and Eve were actual historical figures. And so I think whatever way you go about reconciling things, you've got to keep them together. Now, at the end of it all, uh, if there's nothing else you can take away from it, I think that it's, it's this. You can continue to trust the scriptures, despite what science is saying, because none of this is perfect. Our interpretation of the Bible is not perfect. Interpretation of science isn't perfect. But I'm really comfortable with the idea that if I do get to a point where I feel like scriptures in contradiction to science, I'm, I'm happy to keep trusting the Bible. I like it how Tim Keller says it. Science is a way of telling me truth, and the scriptures is a way of telling me truth. But if they're cl clashing, even if I know science might show me I'm reading the scriptures wrong, and that's happened in the past, like we looked at with Calvin, if you go back and read the text and come to your own conclusion, 
And right now it says to me, no, there is Adam and Eve, and everyone came from Adam and Eve, even though there was a special, and, there, and there were a special creation. Even though I don't have an answer to my scientist friends, that's where I stand. I'm okay to trust God with that. Because if, the Bible's, if our interpretation of the Bible's proven faulty before and science has been proven faulty before, because of the evidence that I see for the historical Jesus and who he is, I'm happy to go with him. Now, I'm sure there might be many more questions. You're welcome to come to Q&A tonight uh, after the evening service and ask them directly. You can catch me after the service now. Uh, but let me pray now. And then with the humility that comes with knowing Christ, we're going to sing praises to our God with faith and trust in him even if we don't have every answer to every question. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and all that he's done for us. Thank you that he took on physical form and came into this world in order that he might live, die, and rise again so that we might know you truly. Thank you that it's through his acts and existence in the physical world that we know you most clearly. Thank you for your scriptures that record those eyewitness testimonies, the things that were observed and evidenced and tested by the apostles, so that we still now, 2,000 years later, can build our lives on the truth of those acts revealed to us, that Jesus is Lord of all, that he made the world and everything in it, and that we can trust him with our very lives. Help us to wrestle well with these questions through growth group this week. And Lord, at the end of the day, whatever questions we might have, help us to continue trusting in you because we've seen your goodness, not in the story of the origin of the world, but most clearly through Jesus' death and resurrection. And we thank you for this in his mighty name. Amen.